Today we're doing a, the last of our series, You Ask For It. You Ask For It. And this series is about like, what's that one thing you always wanted to hear about in church? And so what we did in December, we had all these little things. People can write down questions and, and, uh, and what they want us to say. So we're going to respond to six of them. Now, because there's six of them, we might go longer than what we normally do. So hold on to your seats. We're going to faithfully respond. And I've got a, got a panel of experts Panel of experts, uh, <laughs> they're faithful ministers, faithful people who love God, who love reading the Bible. They're going to respond to these questions. So the first one I'm going to ask up is Pastor PJ. Pastor PJ, she's, um, been, she was being ordained since the 90s, um, senior, senior pastor of Tairua Elam for about 14 years, been part of our pastoral team along with Pastor Yalta for the last Five, six years around there. Uh, important member of our team. Second person I'd like to invite is Mike Cook. Mike Cook, he serves, he's a part of the CMI Ministries, Christian Ministries. He travels around churches talking about stuff about evolution, science, and all these things about the Bible and things like that. So he's a credible part of the team. And the, and the last member of our panel, I'd like to ask Elliot to come up. Elliot, he's a surfer and a snowboarder. No, no, he's more than that too. He's uh, he's a graduate of Bible College, and he's a he's an evangelist as well. So we're going to get straight into it. So here are some of these questions, and so let's let's get into this. And so um, here we go. So we're going to start number one. This is one of the questions that were asked, and I'm going to ask of this of Pastor PJ if you can respond to this question. Um, it's this: how how does the Bible determine marriage? How does the Bible law differ to today's law? So this is the question that was asked. And so, Pastor PJ, could you respond? Good question, isn't it? Well, it was uh, God's idea right from the beginning. Uh, when God created Adam and he saw that it was not good for him to be alone, um, he created not another Adam, but he created Eve. And so good. Yes. Yay. I'm happy. <laughs> so both were created in God's image. And it says, and therefore... Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife or join his wife, and they shall be one flesh, which is in Genesis 2, verse 24. And God told them to be fruitful and to have children. And yeah. so this is uh, really God's design uh, marriage. And it's been happening thousands of years like that, and we're still holding on to that truth. And you can find many scriptures in, in the New Testament, even in in Luke, uh, Jesus talks about marriage, and he still refers back to Genesis 1, mm, yeah. um, saying that uh, it is for a man to leave his father and mother and join his wife, and they shall be one, one flesh. And so, and Jesus actually said something else to it, uh, if I find it. Uh, what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. That's what Jesus said. So, um, Obviously, the ceremony in those days might look a bit different, but the essence is still the same. Mm. And those days they might have uh, married a bit younger than what people are getting married now. It seems to get later and later in getting married. Um, but yes, oh, not at all, yes. Um, but it is actually uh, a covenant for man and woman to be joined in marriage. It's a covenant, it's a sacred covenant for each other, but also in the sight of God. So um, in the Bible, you had arranged marriages, 
and it's still happening uh, actually today in some cultures that you have arranged marriages. So how does the Bible differ from today? Well, I'm going with the New Zealand law. Uh, and the New Zealand law says that you have to be 18 before you can get married. And if you're younger than that, you have to ask permission from the court. And obviously you need a license and you need a marriage celebrant. So um, that is not much different as it was in in Bible times, but it's, it seems like it is a little bit more structured. And so not everybody can marry a, a person. And so for us here, uh, Pastor Enns is a marriage celebrant and myself. And for and $800, yeah, no, we, just, we, yeah, we, just kidding, we, just kidding. We, no. we got quite a high fee. No, it's, it's for free for, for uh, Obviously, all Pastor Enns' fee is higher than <laughs> <laughs> Just a good, good feed, good feed at the wedding. That's all I require. <laughs> but you need those two to make a marriage legal here in New Zealand. But since 2013, there was a massive, massive shift in the marriage law in New Zealand. And because it gave everybody a right to marry, regardless of sex, sexual orientation or gender orientation. And is not defined only to between male and female. So that is, has been a huge shift here in New Zealand. And obviously for, for us as believers that have been holding on to the truth, uh, what the Bible teaches us. So what does it mean for us as a church? Well, the Elam Church of New Zealand uh, has a statement of faith. Um, and the marriage is between male and female as God has intended it to and which is biblical. And so um, we believe that God intended marriage to be a partnership of mutual love and respect and honor. And this is the biblical context for God's gift for sexual intimacy. And we believe that marriage between one man and one woman is the ideal and God intended context in which to conceive and raise children. So that has helped us a lot um, because um, as marriage celebrants, because we come under Elam New Zealand, that is the organization which holds our registration. And so we're holding fast to the statement of faith of, uh, of our Elam New Zealand church. And so um, that doesn't mean um, we are anti-people, but we're holding fast on the truth mm. and on the biblical concept of marriage. And marriage is a good thing, if I say it yeah. myself. I've been nearly married for 50 years to one man. <laughs> Big party. We're looking forward to that party. Yeah, the party's uh, coming. Queenstown. Queenstown. Oh, party's up. in Queenstown, guys. Yeah, yeah we're <laughs> in um, One of the questions I always get asked about, like, because, um, oh, you know, isn't, you know, I'm not being married by the Lord. Some paper doesn't show that I'm married. I'm married between me in the eyes of God. So what they're trying to say is that I don't have to get married to say I'm married. Well, it's just, it's just between us and God. Um, but biblically, bu biblically, um, biblically, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, is by law. It's, uh, it's done in front of witnesses and it's, and there is, um, you find a rabbi and all these things. And, um, and if you're not married and you're living together, the Bible term for that is a concubine. A concubine is a Bible term. If you're living with someone, you're not married. And today we'll call it de facto, de facto relationships. That's what we call it today. So in the Bible time, if you're living with someone, you're not married, they go, hi, this is my concubine. 
Uh, but yeah, we don't say that. And so, um, but that's what biblically, that's the difference. And so a marriage is, um, is, uh, is a legal document, even in the Bible, it's illegal. Um, and um, you can't, so in the Bible it talks about divorce certificates. You, you, you can only divorce someone you're married. You can't divorce your concubine. And that's in Scripture as well. So that's what we're going to say about that. Let's move right along. Let's get to the next question. Um, here we go. Why are the two genealogies in the New Testament different? I.e., Joseph, Mary's husband, has two different fathers listed in the two genealogies. I love this uh, question because this is a keen-eyed reader who's obviously looked at the genealogy of Jesus, and they're different. We read Matthew, and when you read Luke, they're different from, from, when you, from King David down, from King David down to when Jesus is born. They're different. And this is where they differ. So for King David, uh, let's just look at the verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon. Then we go to Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 31. The son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. Okay, so, so what we're seeing here is that um, Matthew takes the lineage from, Solomon's, uh, from King David's son Solomon, goes down that line. Luke takes it from David's son Nathan and goes down that line. And then you get two totally different lineages, uh, which, which of course means how can that be possible? Because when we get to their fathers, you know, if you go, because um, we get to Joseph's father, Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, right? Joseph has two different fathers according to, according to the Bible. So read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 15, Eliezer, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph. And in Luke, uh, it says this, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet. So now you've got a Matthew, and Matthew, Jacob is Joseph's father, and Luke, it's Heli who's Joseph's father. And they're two totally different lineages when you all the way to, to, to Joseph. Did they get it wrong? Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Here it is. I knew there was contradiction. I found it. Actually, no. When we get into this, um, when it comes to Jews, Jews are really, uh, they're really about genealogy, about whakapapa. And whakapapa was very important to them. And so, they, and, and, and they're, and so, so therefore, if they're whakapapa, if the genealogy, if they're lines, if, if this is true, then why are they different? And there are different views on that. And one of them is what's known as the Leverite law or um, the adoption law, where is that if you're, if, uh, if your husband dies, to keep that lineage going, they marry the brother to keep that line going. Okay, that doesn't happen today. That'd be a bit weird if it happened today. Um, they keep their line going, and that's how you get two different fathers. Um, and the other one that we look at, which I hold to, um, is that um, the two different lineages, one is the lineage of, of Joseph, and the other is the lineage of Mary. And when we read the book of Matthew, looking at the nativity scene, the birth of Jesus, it's through the eyes of Joseph. Joseph has a dream. Do not take, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph has a dream. Flee because, um, because uh, Herod is, uh, is on the rampage. Get, go to Egypt. So it's all through the eyes of Matthew. When we get to Luke, it's through the eyes of Mary. Like the angel speaking to Mary uh, and, saying, and saying that you're going to have be of child. And, and, and then it's about Mary's journey to her cousin Elizabeth and, and also through these journeys. And so, um, and so therefore the lineage in Luke is Mary's lineage. And they didn't have a term for son-in-law. So they didn't say, this is my son-in-law. Actually, they became their son. 
So Heli looked at Joseph not as they didn't use it, they didn't have a son in law term, they said, Joseph is my son. And that's why Mary said, and when we look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, uh, it says, He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. The, so there's a real big clue in there that actually, no, this isn't Joseph's lineage and it's not even the son. So the, the idea, when we look at Matthew, we see the legal that Joseph, that Jesus' lineage goes all the way to King David, legally through the legal father, Joseph, and then through the bloodlines of Mary all the way back to King David through different sons. And so there we have it. But at the end of it, which one is right? It doesn't really matter. What matters is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's the story of that. But it's a keen-eyed reader, and there's lots of debate about that. But there, yeah, any, anybody like to add anything? No. Nope. Let's, let's keep rolling, because uh, uh, it, only, it only goes up from here. Here we go. Number three. Here's a good one. How do you explain to people that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one person, even though there's three of them? It's a Trinity mm. question. So, yeah, That's an interesting question. Mm. We commonly call it the Trinity, although the word Trinity is not in the Bible at all. And But to set, just state this, in Isaiah 45 verse 5 it says, uh, there is only one God, and apart from me there is no other God. So although there is God and there are three, it's only one God. It is one God, but three different persons. And that is sometimes hard to get our head around it. It says there are three gods, but different forms of the same God. Another says God is revealed to us in different persons. And each person of the Trinity is fully God, but the three persons of the Trinity are not the same. And we know that they're not the same. That, but there is one God who eternally exists at three distinctive persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence, but he is in three persons. I think that can, it's quite a mystery. It's sometimes hard to get your head around it. And sometimes we want to use uh, earthly metaphors. And, and some people say, um, well, I'm a human being, I've got a body, and I've got a soul, and I've got a spirit. So to help a little bit better to understand, sometimes people say, well, think of water. You know, water, you can have frozen water, frozen Coke, um, <laughs> and you can have steam, like for a cup of tea, or the steam is coming up. So, but whatever metaphor, earthly metaphor we use, it really, it always falls short. Always, because it is a heavenly concept which we can sometimes not explain in earthly words. Um, so I find when we have a, a personal relationship with God, it, it seems to come more clearer because we have accepted Jesus as our personal saviour and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and, and Jesus taught us how to pray to our Father who art in heaven. And I think the best ideas or the best information we can get about Father God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is actually from the Bible itself. Mm. And I find, um, one, I find 
stands out for me. And that is when Jesus got baptized. Uh, if you know the story, Jesus got baptized, comes to the Jordan River, and, and John the Baptist is there, and he asked to get baptized. John the Baptist is in two minds about it because they think, wow, you don't need to get baptized, but Jesus uh, wants to get baptized. So he goes in the water, get baptized by John the Baptist, and then the heavens opened. We never read that before. The heavens opened, and then we hear a voice. And the voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well placed. And in that same moment, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon Jesus. And that is just a, a beautiful picture how the three are actually working together. They're never in competition. They're always, always in unity with each other. Another one I like too when Jesus um, was on earth and, and he, we hear that he went often in the morning to pray. And he did not pray to himself, but he prayed to his Father in heaven. And so the more we actually read the Bible, the, the more we are, are getting closer to him and become more like him, the better we start to understand how... The Trinity, obviously, it's not a word in the Bible, but how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit works. So there is also a scripture in 2 Corinthians 13 that says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew 28, we all know very well, it said, Go therefore and make disciples in all nations. And what? Baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's only one God, but there are three distinctive persons, and they all work together. And for us, it's beautiful to have the Holy Spirit here. God is here by His Spirit. It's just beautiful. Amen. Fantastic. Uh, I, I, um, I'm going to share the story. I love sharing the story. Um, and uh, when I first became a Christian, um, I, I, got, I got saved at this uh, uh, youth group. And, but all week I was kind of confused because I, was, I started reading. It says, worship God alone. I started reading the Ten Commandments. And I was thinking, well, how can we worship Jesus? So I remember asking my mate, we're walking off to youth group. And I said, I'm confused. Like, we're supposed to worship God alone. We're worshiping Jesus. And my mate goes, oh, they're both the same. It's the same. I was like, what? God and Jesus are the same. And I was like, oh, it makes sense. And then uh, the light bulb came on. So this is my first week as a Christian. And then that Saturday, I get a knock on the door. These guys, um, they, they, they knock on doors often and they might, might come to your house and knock on your door. And they say, hey, we're giving away free Bible studies. Would you like one? I was like, hey, i am just become a Christian. I would love a free Bible study. And they go, oh, um, so what, uh, what, what church do you go to? Because, oh, I just go to a youth group. And he goes, oh, what do they believe? Do they believe in the Trinity? And I'm like, the what? I've never, never heard of the Trinity. And I was like, what's the Trinity? And they said, oh, where well, they believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. And I was like, yes, I believe that. That's what I believe. Like, I had no idea. And so they told me what the word Trinity meant. And I go, that's what I, I believe that. Then they said to me, no, that's wrong. I was like, Wait a minute, what's going on? I've, and this is where the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And I started thinking, actually, this is not, something's not right here. Then they said to me, well, how can I go home? 
and I see my son, my son is, my son is not me and I'm not my son. How is that possible? And so I said to him, well, can God do anything? And they go, yes. Well, if God can do anything, therefore God can be his son and the son be him and at the same time be separate. Can he do anything? And they go, well, I guess so. And I said, well, here's the thing. I think you're looking at putting God in a human package. God is much bigger than us. And I said, thank you so much. I don't need your Bible study. See you later. Thank you so much. And close the door. I'm, I'm not sure who they were. Something about witnesses. But anyway, that was my little story there about the, oh, learning the truth. I learned the word Trinity from, from these other groups early days. Early days. Yeah. Here we're here. And here I am today. So praise God. Well, um, tell you, and there's a symbol of the Trinity, or how it looks like. It's even that alone. It's our finite minds trying to comprehend something that's infinite. This is this is this is this is, this is doesn't even comprehend who God is. But we're finite beings trying to describe an undescribable God. So there we have it. Okay, we're just going to go straight into the next one, and I'm going to ask this directly to Mike, Mike Cook. So here we go. What does the Bible say about Israel and its history? Why should Christians support Israel, particularly in the light of the present times in Israel? So I guess if you watch TV, you know there's a lot of things going on. So, so Mike, what do you say about that? <laughs> do I run and hide now? No, this is um, you know, a really good question, and you know, it's something that's dominating our news and so on at the moment, isn't it? And there's a lot of, it's very, very um, controversial, it's very divisive. Lots of people are sort of being, you know, either one or the other. So I want to just preface it in two things just to quickly start off with. One is um, last week I you know, talked about how I really believe that God's word is, the Bible is God's word, it is trustworthy, not only from the point of view of creation and uh, but also God's character, but also his covenants and his promises right through. So and PJ, Pastor PJ talked about marriage. You know, we as a church, uh, Elam Church here, we define the Bible as our, our basis, all right? So it also applies to how we see Israel and the Jewish people and the bigger picture of the nations. Right, so that's theologically, I'm coming from that point of view, basing it on the Bible, which is very, very clear. But secondly, I'm basing it on personal experience as well. So my beautiful wife, Desma, over there, we actually met in Israel way back. Now, she's a Kiwi from Aotearoa, but we met on a kibbutz in Israel in 1984. And we've been back three times since. We've been to Israel four times and the first time living there for several months. So we've seen the nation over the decades, how it's changed and expanded, and also the politics, the changes each time we go back, what's happened. So... Coming from the point of view, we've been from, from Dan down to Elat in the south and right across and so on. So we've actually seen uh, the country mm. really well. We understand it, I think, hopefully reasonably well. But it is difficult. So a lot of the stuff you see, you scroll TikTok or Instagram or YouTube and so on, you know, you have to put your glasses on and say, what's really happening? You know, there's lots and lots of um, different ideas that are coming out. So I want to preface that. But um, what we're actually looking at really today is a spiritual battle that's gone on for 4,000 years. Okay, so the next slide I've got, I brought it up, um, I talked last week about the Bible being a meta-narrative, it's a picture of, of God's character, the history, right from creation right through to consummation, new heavens and new earth, which uh, Elliot will be talking about later, the millennium and so on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you see there, so you've got perfect creation, uh, and then God defining marriage and Adam and Eve perfect in relationship with him, and then we have the curse, the fall, and the whole world started to fall apart. And that's where violence and bloodshed and, and uh, disharmony came in as well. And we have the catastrophe of the global flood that destroyed the whole earth, the judgment of God upon a sinful world. And then we have the confusion of the people who decided they wanted to be God and be in one place. And God separated them by language and families. And they went out and um, we get our ethnic and racial connections from that dispersion. And then, of course, we get to a guy called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so this is the idea of a covenant. So Abraham is a really important guy in the Bible. 
and he had two sons, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. Okay, so God has set a purpose, and then right through from Isaac, it points right through to Christ. Jesus, we heard about um, you know, Joseph and Mary, but Jesus, son of God, son of Mary, fully God, fully human. He came through that uh, Jewish line. Jesus was Jewish on his time on earth, and he paid the price for us, and that's where we have the Messiah. And so then, of course, we go through the New Testament, the church age. So Abraham, I want to quickly look at why Abraham, this is where it goes back to what we see today. But before I do, there's a couple of scriptures in here. I want to just talk again. Think about, as we look at these scriptures, turn on your news, think about what you see in the news, the different nations around Israel, the Middle East. You've got countries like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Syria, Iraq. You know, just when we look at the Arabic people, the people who are sons of Abraham, they are brothers with the Jewish people. And we see even thousands of years later, we see this manifestation coming out. I will end at the end, of course, with a lot of hope, right? Yeah. Right, so if we look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, so here's 1 and 3, rather. This is God speaking to Abraham. Okay, so this is God revealing himself to Abraham. He said, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Because he's, give, he's saying to Abraham, you're going to have a son, even though you're old and, and Sarah is old, but I'm promising you a son who will be the father of an amazing nation that will bless the whole earth. So here's Abraham. He's getting on in years and thinking, well, you know, we're way past this childbearing age and nothing's happening, nothing's happening. So eventually Sarah says, look, you know, God's given you a promise. So I don't doubt that. But, you know, maybe take Hagar, my servant, you know, get, you, you get, her, get her pregnant and he, the son can be yours and that will continue the line. That wasn't God's plan, but that's what happened. See, God actually then spoke to Hagar. You know, here she is. She's been a concubine, you know, as Aunt said. And so here's the Lord speaking to Hagar. You are now pregnant and you shall give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Okay, so here she is. She's been persecuted by her, her uh, employer because of, um, you know, I guess jealousy. And here about Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in hostility with all his brothers. Think about the Middle East. Do you see that? Yeah, that connection, isn't it? But you see, God also said, I will bless you. You know, the son is special to me as well. And we go on to Genesis chapter 18. And Abraham is, you know, again, no son. And so here we have Ishmael has been born. And God is reinforcing again that you're going to have this line. So Abraham is saying to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, he says, I've got a son here. May he be blessed. And God said, yes. In other words, yes, I will bless him. But your wife Sarah will be you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. You see, so we have the, the Jewish line and the Arabic or the, the line, the two sons of Abraham. And this uh, family dispute has gone on for millennia, hasn't it? Yeah, so that's um, to give you a bit of a time frame. So this is about 4,000 years ago, mm, yep. so about 2000, 2000 BC. BC. And, um, and so that's why if you're for the Islamic people, they look to Abraham as their father because it's through Ishmael. The Arabs come through for Ishmael. And we just see that they really are just brothers. And so and then, of course, we wind right forward to the 20th century and um, you know, the, land, the present land of Israel being reborn miraculously 
1948. So um, there's one scripture again, and, and many, many scriptures right through the, New, the Old Testament pointing to the restoration of Israel. But one of them here in Isaiah 66, verse 8, it says, Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen a thing like this? Can a country be born in one day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labour than she gives birth to her children. Okay, so I just want to give you a very quick timeline of the last um, hundred or so years of how the present state of Israel in its original land, where they were for thousands of years, has been reborn. So, winding right back. So again, the, uh, for about six, uh, eight hundred years, the um, Ottoman Empire ruled over what we call Palestine, okay? So the Turks are not Arabs, but uh, it wasn't in uh, World War I when that finished. We ended up with a guy called Lord Balfour, and he was a Bible-believing Christian, and he saw that there was a time for uh, Israel to come back, the Jewish nation to be re-established in the land. And so in 1917, there was a declaration by Lord Balfour saying that we need to have a Jewish state back in you know, the area that they were. And then in 1923, at the San Remo Conference, 51 nations reaffirmed that statement. The first one had no legal standing. The San Remo Conference did. And so they reaffirmed, 50, 51 nations, the League of Nations, affirmed a Jewish state in Palestine. And then, of course, we have 1933 to 1945, the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, which Desmond reminded me yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. Okay? Mm. Uh, and then out of the ashes of that, then in 1947, the new, brand new United Nations reaffirmed and voted in favour of granting the Jewish people their homeland back in that area. So politically, we have a huge mandate for Israel's right to be in that land, okay? I'm not going into all the rights and wrongs and what's happened, but that's there is a spiritual and also a political mandate they have to be there. So they're not like a whole bunch of settlers who have come in and stolen the land. All right, um, and then of course, 1948, May the 14th, David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the Jewish state in Eretz Israel as a state of Israel. Can a nation be born in one day? Yes, it was. And also the Hebrew language was amazingly restored, and it's now the day-to-day -day language of a people. You know, a dead, like Latin, suddenly becoming a day-to-day -day language of a nation. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. But the very next day, all the Arab nations around the little fledgling state of Israel attacked with the intention of wiping them out. And many of the Arab people living in that area were told to get out, we're going to deal with this, and we're going to drive the Jews into the sea. You can see how that's a really uh, offensive and genocidal statement to say that. And so, yes, and we've seen all the pain and suffering since then. So what I want to really emphasise, I haven't got time to go into too much detail, but we've prepared a um, fair bit of time into this sheet of paper. It's four pages of closely typed stuff. There's a number of them out there. Please take, take it away, pray about it, read what I've got to say there. I believe it's been backed up historically from a number of sources. Um, if something's demonstrably wrong, please tell me. But it gives you a bigger context historically, scripturally and politically of the situation we see today. But just in finishing, there is hope, and that's ultimately a spiritual battle, isn't it? And people need to be transformed. The Israelis need to understand their Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. He has come. He provides a way forward. But also the Arabic people, God has blessed them. He wants them to be in relationship with them. And they're currently under a very demonic delusion, aren't they, about the whole thing. And so this violence and stuff comes out of the cycle of misinformation. So there's a video, um, five-minute video by Jürgen Bühler, Dr. Jürgen Bühler uh, from the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. Five minutes, he just talks up the whole bigger picture of how we need to pray for the area, pray for the people in Gaza, pray for the Palestinian people, the Arabic nations around there. And as they get transformed, so amongst the ashes and the difficulty and the pain of this current war, this is a reset both for Israel and for that nation. 
that whole area. Otherwise, the cycle goes on and on. So please help yourself to these. Um, I'd love you just to look at those. Happy to answer questions, but otherwise, um, dig in there. Yes, the Israelis aren't perfect, but there is hope only through Jesus. Amen. Um, so if you have any other difficult questions, go see Mike after this. Uh, uh, well, just a little note. Um, there's a bit of a... Um, so for only 31% of Israelis living in Israel um, identify with um, uh, European uh, lineage. You know, talking about the Holocaust, I'm coming there. Um, but 69% are from the Middle East. The Middle East. So they're 69% from Israel identify from the Middle East. So they weren't like... Um, they were always in the land. They were always in the land. That's just something. You, but anyway, yeah, we can. Very, very quickly, you mentioned about that. Most of all those other ones who are, are again, the Semitic uh, Jews were driven out of the Arab land. So, yes, about 750,000 Arabs were displaced during the 1948, but about the same number were displaced and ejected from the nations around. That's why they ended up being refugees. And Israel absorbed them in. Five million people have been absorbed in as refugees. The Palestinian refugees are the only refugee group in the world that are being refused to be integrated. They could easily be integrated into the Arabic lands, but they're not. They're being held up and held out because of politics. Yeah, yeah it's quite interesting. The, the Arab nations don't want to integrate them. No. Israel are happy to integrate them, but they don't want to integrate. And then anyway, yeah. let's go around in circles. Let's just get into um, a very short one. won't take long. It's a very short topic. It's the end times. <laughs> the second coming. And this is where we're going to go slightly over time. It's the second coming rapture. There's a bit of a rapture ruckus going on there. So uh, I'm going to hand this over to um, uh, one of our top biblical scholars, Elliot. <laughs> Hello, how's it all going? Good. Excellent. Nice bit of rain on the roof. Yeah. Just a little bit of distraction. <laughs> second coming. Uh, yeah. Just warning us the second coming is <laughs> happening. Actually, my, um, my cousin, she's married to a, um, an Arab guy. They live in Lower Hutt. Um, in Wellington, and um, his family are all Christians and live just up above um, the Sea of Galilee. So, um, you know, so there are, there are a lot of Arabs that are Christians, and, um, yeah, it's, mm. a, it's certainly a complex one, though, isn't it? I, th I think social media um, stirs a lot of things up, um, and there's a lot of, mm. yeah, yeah. And in relation to the second coming and, and the rapture and this type of thing, too, it's very similar as well. There's just a lot of different opinions and often a lot of hate, you know, um, a lot mm. of, no, you, I can't believe that, you can't be going to heaven, you know, and then the other, whoa, whoa, no, 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 you know what I mean? It's almost like, um, why don't you just together, get together and have a bit of a rumble and sort yourself out, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's that bad, isn't it, you know? And you, you see the hate speech and the thread of it below some of the comments on social media, and it, it, it's a blessing and a curse, that's all I can say. But, um, look, just, just kicking off in, um, uh, to me, it's important, um, keeping the big picture, the big picture in relation to the second coming or the, or the rapture. And I've just got a couple of quick verses just before I kick into it. Um, Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, which says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I think this is the key um, when you're, mm. anytime you're looking at eschatology, which is the theological term for end times, um, this is the key is that, hey, Jesus Christ could be returning at any time. How he turns up, who really knows? I mean, there's a lot of different opinions and we'll um, quickly go over those today. Um, but the key thing is that you're living ready. Yeah. You know, like the early church lived, they, their expectation was that Jesus Christ 
they saw him go and they were thinking he was coming back in their generation, right? Mm. And uh, it's very easy to get, oh, you know, I mean, you know, things are a bit out of control or the world's doing this or that. But no, God is in control. Yeah, come on. And, and his time frame is his time frame. In Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, he, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as we're doing today, um, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And I think we can probably all look at each other and very much say, hey, look, Jesus could be coming back at any time. We're in pretty crazy times. But keep in mind, any every generation that's lived since Jesus Christ departed and went to heaven has thought the same thing. So uh, here we are thousands and thousands, you know, thousands of years later, right? So anyway, the rapture, um, you know, some call it the, uh, the second-hand clothing store bonanza event um, <laughs> or the left behind side of it. You know, we go. Jesus come, turns up in whatever way, maybe he's riding a white horse in the clouds, he comes down, we rise to meet him in the air. You know, this is the classic sort of, uh, I suppose, um, description of the rapture that's only really been around for the last hundred couple of years. So when you talk, when you talk about the history of the church, it's actually quite a mo modern theory. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's a good theory. I like the thought of it. Jesus come, you know, I mean, we all like, you know, to think the saviour comes down and we all go to be in the air with him. And if that's how it is, awesome, I'm in on it, you know. <laughs> um, but, but there are other theories. Um, now, keep in mind that uh, when you talk about um, any sort of theological um, uh, theories that come out of studying the Bible, usually it's two or three times before you can actually make any sort of statement uh, for example, um, you know, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, something will be mm. proved, right? So rapture is actually only mentioned once in the Bible, but not as the word rapture. It's more about snatching. You know, when you snatch the toy off your sister or your brother or your next-door neighbour when you're playing in the sandpit. Anyone play in the sandpit as a kid? Did you snatch any toys? Jason, I can see that. Yes, yes. He's still uh, snatching it. <laughs> So that, 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 that's sort of the context, and we see, uh, we see that written um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So you can read through this at your own time, but it talks about him coming in the clouds and meeting the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. So um, some of these notes are taken from Pastor Ants, by the way, so if there's any <laughs> theological complexities or debate, you know who to talk to. <laughs> The guy on the right, or on your left. So um, you know. So what? What did Paul actually mean mean here? Well, there's a there, there's a there's a couple of things um, that are said, uh, and one of the thoughts is which I sort of lean towards is that it's a little bit like a king, you know, or the prime minister or the president of a nation, you know, is coming to the nation or coming to a city, and everyone comes out and lines the road. You know, I don't know if anyone, I, I mean, I did that as a kid. I remember going out on the road, I think it was the Queen going past in a limousine or something like that. And, you know, believe it or not, back in back in my day, we used to all lie on the road. I don't know if people do it this day. There might be eggs thrown and things like that. But it was it was quite an honour thing, you know. It's like, hello, the, and the Queen would go past, you know, do that famous wave. I'm not was sure it, if it was I the Queen more, in the car. More like this. Oh, more like that, is it? Yeah, <laughs> it's like twist this way. Yeah, yeah. So, um 
that to me, I like I like the thought of that. Is that uh, you know the 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 king turns up, we go out to meet the king, and then we go to this new heavenly, this this heavenly place, and that seems to be. I mean, look, it's either metaphorical or it's something along this line, right? So I mean, you choose where you go, but there's only really these these several opinions, a uh, couple of opinions that are in the Bible about that. Um, so yeah, the left behind style, or hey, Jesus turns up, and we go out to meet him and sort of welcome him, and, and we go go off to be with him forever. So how does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Sounds you good. can't disagree because they're your notes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have butchered them a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I know. No, just well, kidding. I manipul- <laughs> manipulated them for the sake of time and for boredom. Um, so the other hot potato here was a millennium, right? A millennium, yeah. So, anyone handled a hot potato before? Yeah, yeah. Have you, like, generally, you know, the hot potato comes straight out of the pot, you know, it goes to someone, it's too hot, you pass it to the next person. Wow, that's the millennium right there. You know, there's all of these different opinions. Um, It sort of seems to point towards this thousand year reign. Um, Is it actually. Uh, you know, a literal thousand-year reign, or is it not a thousand-year reign? I mean, I don't know, but if we can get to the slide here, um, this sort of gives you a, a, a quick picture of what's going on here. Here are the main opinions. The only one that's missing in there is the pan-millennial, which, uh, well, that was one I made up. It's not. A, there is actually no pan-millennial, but we thought that was the kitchen-based theology of yeah. the thousand-year Rain, it, it, so. What that means that it all pans out. Yeah, it all pans out. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, we can see that we can see here. There's this pre-millennial view where uh, Christ reigns on earth literally for th- a thousand years, and then there's this time where God comes back, or we go out to meet Him as He's. You know what the I mean? There, here's these two these two things. Yeah, the rapture, um, and then we go into this millennium. This this time frame, and then there's this final judgment where everyone stands before um, God in some way. Who leans towards that? No one's got their hands up. It doesn't matter. You can put your hand up to any of it, but there's no judgment on put my hand side. Up to all of them. <laughs> if you put your hand up to all of them, then you're a pan-millennialist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pan-millennialist. It all pans up. <laughs> That's right. So the post-millennial is, is Christ reigns through the church. So it's like... We, the church, are on earth still. He, he can't, and, and we're basically the ones that represent him, that, you know, when people are lost, there's still evil going on in the world. Then we get to this, uh, this millennium or this thousand-year time, and then at the end of that's the second coming and, and what we call the last judgment. They're all really tied up together, right? I mean, this end times um, uh, view always includes the judgment, the second coming or the, and the rapture, these type of things. Uh, and then a millennial, which is Christ reigns in the church, uh, in the hearts of the believers, and during this church age, it's symbol- it's basically symbolic of of the thousand years. And then there's the second coming and the last judgment. So look, whichever way you want to look at it, and look, there is actually only really one mention of this thousand year millennial time anyway in the Bible. It's a little bit like the rapture, um, and that's in the book of Revelation. Um, so it is very much you know, hey, take, take it as you will. But as we do know, what's more written about is that Jesus is definitely coming and uh, there is going to be this time where we connect with, with him as the body of Christ. 
and uh, and we will live in this incredible place. I mean, will it be streets of gold? Well, it seems to point towards that. I don't know. I can't imagine streets of gold being comfortable to walk on, but um, ice skates. Ice skates, yeah, yeah. That's someone from the northern hemisphere talking there. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's that's really, I suppose, in a nutshell. Yeah. The millennium. Yeah, that's that's right. So um, you can see how. All three views are held by biblical scholars, and they can. And, and, and to be honest, all three all three views have holes in it, and with the holes, you just make it up. And so I think it's on purpose that we're not meant to really know. We're not really meant to know. It's meant to be a mystery, and um, and so what's really important is that our relationship with Jesus. That is, and that's why it was never really meant. It was just to be ready, be ready now. Be reading, and that's really important. That's why I said it will all pan out. It'll all pan out at the end. And uh, uh, this last one, just answer really quickly. The millennium. Oh, just don't change. Oh yeah, go. The millennium. How will Jesus, the man, ensure good godly government through the whole world, Jerusalem, considering ungodliness in today's times? Could you go back to that other slide? So if you hold that view, you're talking about premillennialism, and um, during the millennium, the top one. Um, Satan is in prison for a thousand years. So if he's in prison for a thousand years, he doesn't bring temptation on the world. So whoever asked that question is holding to that view there. And so you, and that's how, go back to that question again. There you go. Millennia, how will Jesus ensure good godly government through the world from Jerusalem? Well, if the devil's in prison, therefore there is no, um, no us being led astray. If, if you hold that view, like I said, look, it doesn't matter what view you hold. It's, you know, if someone holds a different end time view to you, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Pun tended. <laughs> okay. We can still be brothers and sisters if you've got a different end. It doesn't matter. Um, and um, what matters is your relationship with Jesus matters. Your relationship is, is what really matters. Where you, where you stand with them today. Where you stand with them today. You know, you can either, you can either um, ignore them as a... As a liar, dismiss him as a lunatic, or serve him as the Lord. The choice is yours. There's only three. If Jesus is a man you cannot ignore. You cannot ignore Jesus. You've got three decisions. You can dismiss him, ignore him, or serve him. And you need to make that decision. You need to make that decision. Because whatever it is, whenever you die, that's the end of the world for you. The end is coming. When you close your eyes for the last time, that's the end. So do you know for sure where you are going? If you don't know for sure, then you need to make a decision. Jesus is either telling the truth or he's not. Do I receive Jesus or don't I? That's a decision you need to make. 